Welcome to episode 75 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us, listener. Uh, firstly, as always, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, we actually really are an international podcast. So I was looking at where our listeners are and 60% of us are in the UK, but the other 40% are spread across the globe from North America to Europe. But I'd also like to welcome our listeners uh, down under in Australia and New Zealand and also from Asia in India, Taiwan, Japan, Thailand, Hong Kong, all countries I spotted on the list. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be finding out about midsummer skiing in Scotland, uh, St. Moritz in Switzerland and the oldest ski club in the world, the Ski Club of Great Britain. Uh, so first, I'd like to introduce my guest today. Uh, first, we have Mariana Jakic from the Swiss Ski Resort of Samritz. How are you, Mariana? I'm very good. Thank you so much. Excellent. And also James Gambrell, the new general manager at the Ski Club of Great Britain. Hi, James. How are you? Good, good morning, Ian. Very well. Thank you. Good to be here. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Well, traditionally, the first question I like to ask uh, my guests is when you skied or snowboarded last. And they, the more of these podcasts have gone on, for our uh, friends in the UK, it's uh, longer and longer ago. But Mariana, when were you last uh, on the mountain? I think it was in April, end of April this uh, this year. Yeah. Right. Whereabouts were you? Uh, it's Diavoletta. Uh, Diavoletta Glacier. Uh, it's a natural um, uh, slope, so I was there. Great. Well, we're we're very envious because I'm going to ask you, James. When did you last get on snow? <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that recently. I have to say. I think the last time was probably uh, February. God, 2019. It must have been uh, in in Dreisinnen in in the Italian Dolomites. Um, but I should say I am skiing on Monday at Hemel Hempstead with Shemi, <laughs> our, our ski club president. So I th- yeah, I, that will be my first time. I'm actually slightly worried Ian, if I'm going to remember how to do it because this is the longest <laughs> I've ever not been. Ski <laughs> so, well, it's, technically it is snow, so it does uh, it, it does snow. count. Yep. So therefore, you know, I'm I'm envious of uh, of that as well. <laughs> well, it might be summer, but you know, there are plenty of people still skiing uh, around the place, and uh, we have some resort reports uh, in this episode. Uh, we've got them from the European glaciers in Tien and Ladies Alp and Val d'Isère. Hi, Ian. Alex from 150 Days of Winter with a snow report from Tien. It's the first of July, and it was great to be back in Tien which is getting ready to host the finish of Stage 9 of the Tour de France on the 4th of July. I was more interested in two planks rather than two wheels, as it's only the second time I've had a chance to use proper alpine skis since fracturing my tibia last year. It was great to be back in Tien, especially as the road from the dam to Tien Lac has been resurfaced, especially for the Tour, which is a nice bonus, and the whole Valkyrie parking area has been redeveloped, meaning that the temporary parking is even more closer to the funicular. Yay! Less distance to walk. The only wild card was the weather. Despite relying on the best weather forecast the internet could provide, which promised bright sunshine, reality was slightly more wintry. As I drove up the valley, with every turn I hoped to see a break in the cloud. As I reached the bottom of the funicular, looking up I could see the glacier was hidden in a blanket of cloud, and as I arrived at the glacier it looked more like January than July. Because of the high winds the cable car wasn't running and the top half of the glacier was closed. But regardless, I found my ski legs quite quickly. The snow on the lower slopes was great, albeit turning soft quite quickly. Nothing out of the ordinary for glacier skiing. 
As I headed down to the lower chair, I noticed, like Courcheval, Tina's implemented snow farming, which, where they store large amounts of snow under insulated blankets to use later on in the summer as the peas start to melt, foreshadowing how ski resorts are dealing with climate change. By 11.30, I had scratched my skiing itch, and as I walked back to the funicular, Mother Nature decided to spite me as the clouds started to part and sunshine illuminated the slopes. Oh well, I guess you can't have everything. I definitely will be back later on in July for another shot at the glacier and have set a target at the end of the summer to walk up the Grand Cessier, one of Teen's highest peaks at over 3,700 metres. If you would like to see this, feel free to subscribe to my YouTube channel, 150 Days of Winter. A huge thank you to Teen Tourism for their support. And until next time, Ian, ciao. Hi, this is uh, Alex Armand from Tip Top Ski Coaching with a snow report from Les Deux Alpes in France. Having spent a fantastic morning skiing up on the glacier this morning with a really good uh, freeze overnight, the snow was in superb condition all the way through till 12.30, 1 o'clock when the lifts shut. We have been super lucky this year to have um, early opening, so a spring opening as well as a summer opening, uh, with fantastic condi conditions all the way down to 2,600 metres. We've now moved over to our summer opening, so the signal blue runs are still open and uh, the main skiing is down to 3,200 metres and above, all the way up to 3,600 metres. The glacier has got fantastic opportunities with plenty of free skiing areas uh, with great wide open pistes, uh, fantastic views over Mont Blanc and the National Park Ekran and superb snow conditions. Areas for ski races, uh, people training in the giant slalom and slalom disciplines mainly, local ski clubs, um, travelling ski clubs uh, and national teams as well which are absolutely fantastic to watch. The glacier also has one of the biggest snow parks uh, with jumps and rails and boxes for everybody. Uh, beginners, uh, easy jumps through to medium, through to large, through to XXL. Uh, some spectacular jumping going on there as well for those that prefer to watch uh, rather than take part. Or those that prefer to have a go on the smaller jumps whilst watching those on the bigger jumps. So the forecast over the next few days is good as well. Uh, we're expecting the uh, glacier to refreeze overnight and the snow conditions to remain really good. So hopefully you'll be able to join us at some point over summer in Les Des Alpes and uh, we look forward to seeing you. Well, it's a glorious morning up here at 3,000 metres on the Val d'Azur Glacier. Waterfall, blue sky and sunshine and it's promising a, a fantastic day of skiing. It's so good to have the ski boots on. It's been such a long time. Uh, despite the early start and the, uh, the drive up to uh, uh, the top of the Col d'Isaran, it is well worth it. And we're looking uh, like uh, a couple more weeks or so until they do uh, shut uh, the lifts up here down. Um, so about halfway through this summer season. And it's been a really good summer season, actually, so far. Um, we had a really sort of good uh, uh, leftover amount of snow falling um, at the end of the season. And that has continued to um, stay 
uh, stay on the piece up high and they've done a really good job in grooming it and getting it really really good conditions uh, as I look around, there's uh, quite a few teams, um, teams where I can see there's teams from down the valley in Les Arcs, obviously the Valders there, one team, a few race clubs from sort of local academies, um, as well as people far further away, um, sort of down towards Annecy and the Mont Blanc area. Um, and actually a couple of teams that have come over from the Aosta Valley as well. So teams coming from far and wide to train as well as um, I think it's the French um, sort of second team here at the moment training as well. So lots and lots of teams out here doing their, uh, their stuff uh, before they move on to the next destination. And there's also, I'm pleased to say, um, a few um, a few holiday makers or probably local normal people like myself who just haven't been able to ski for so long um, and we're just enjoying getting our boots on once again and actually enjoying the fresh air. We've got chairlift at the top open and um, the T-bar and three runs open up here. So not that biggest area to ski in, but perfect to get your fix of skiing uh, at this uh, time of year. Um, it'll also fit in quite nicely um, these snow levels, which are very good with uh, what the new Valder's Air Mayor um, is hoping to do. He's really pushing maybe to um, c continue when the snow allows um, with the Val d'Isère um, ski season to actually run right the way through May into June rather than closing and then reopening. Um, and that will obviously be up at altitude on the glacier. But uh, that's a, an exciting development if the Val d'Isère um, uh, mayor gets his way. So pretty chilly at the moment. Um, as I said, I've been up here since about uh, 6.30, 6.45 this morning. Um, and uh, probably be up here until late morning before uh, packing it up and going down for lunch and uh, some more sort of summertime temperatures down in the valley in Val d'Isère itself. So, um, yes, beautiful conditions, um, which are set to continue in Val d'Isère. Right. Thanks to Alex, Alex and Steve uh, for those reports. Um, now, we've previously featured skiing in Scotland uh, in May in episode 73, but uh, surprisingly, there's also been skiing uh, going on there in June. And so I've got one extra uh, report. I spoke to Andy Meldrum, who's the owner of uh, Glencoe Mountain Resort, who told me about their very famous midsummer ski session. Uh, hi, Andy. Thanks very much for joining us. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Excellent. Now, we heard just then uh, that uh, you were celebrating midsummer on snow uh, in Glencoe. And uh, I understand that's tr a tradition that's been going for quite a few years. How, how long has that been going on for? Yeah, I'm not sure how long it's been going, but I've certainly been taking part for at least 30 years now. I think I've done 26 out of the last 30 years. 26 out of the last 30 years and skiing on the on the, the nearest day possible to midsummer is that how that works yeah it's on the nearest saturday or sunday to to midsummer we we normally turn up and we've had anywhere from uh a snow patch that you can make two turns on to uh to still fully complete runs in a really good season yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, the listeners to the uh, to the uh, podcast are definitely very keen skiers, and we've seen all sorts of people uh, trying to do different things. I mean, this winter we've been talking about skiing in Wales and in the Lake District uh, and in Scotland as well. But this year it was on Saturday, the nineteenth of June, I think. How much snow do you have for people this year? Yeah, the longest patch was on a run called the Spring Run, and it was probably around two hundred and fifty meters long but on quite a steep pitch. So it was actually quite an exciting ski. Uh, and a few of us did the, the very steep flypaper at the end of the day as well, which is about, it's probably about 180 metres long, but 
very, very steep and very narrow. So, uh, you know, certainly got the heart rate going at the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, I saw some video. It looked uh, pretty good, actually. Was there enough depth there? Was it all right to kind of use your skis or any risk of uh, you know, touching through to rocks below? Or No, at this time of year, we get huge amounts of snow comes in from the West Coast. So it builds up quite a deep base. And, uh, you know, it was nice sugary spring snow. So there was no real risk of hitting rocks. It was just uh, a little bit narrow in places. Right, okay. And, and how did it work then? Because I think people took the chairlift and then they walked is that how it how it worked yeah traditionally people take the access chairlift up and then for for one day only at midsummer we normally run the the cliffhanger chair but this year it's undergone some major maintenance so this year unfortunately people had to walk all the way from the, the top of the access chair so they were quite relieved that the patches were quite short because it was quite a hike to get up there so it meant <laughs> And that the runs were shorter, so the hike up was a bit shorter as well. So uh, it had that benefit. Okay, I mean, I guess you know it's pros and cons, isn't it? Uh, When I um, was finding out about skiing in the Lake District a little while ago, you know, you have to do uh, I think an hour or uh, from the members' car park, maybe an hour and a quarter from the other car park to uh, get up to the raise uh, toe there. So you know, people are people are keen. And how many people turned up? How many people were prepared to do that walk? Yeah, turning up at the at the arranged time, we had 20 people, but then later in the day, some other people turned up, uh, which is, is fairly typical. I think the best we've ever had is just over 100 people for midsummer ski, but that was on a, an exceptional year when you could still, you know, we could still probably almost run the lifts. Uh, so we had a huge amount of snow. And, and the worst I've ever experienced was uh, when we had two people and it was lashing the rain and miserable and the, the snow patch was... Uh, we weren't even sure it was still there. Uh, <laughs> right. If only, if only we could guarantee uh, good snow conditions. Uh, you know that would that would be amazing. E- excellent. Well, that's that's great, Andy. Thanks for coming on to uh, talk to us, and I wish you uh, all the best for uh, for next winter and for many more midsummer days of skiing uh, to come. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's so good to hear about people enjoying time on snow, even if it's just a few hundred metres of it. Uh, If you'd like to know more about skiing in Scotland, can I suggest you take a listen to episode 62 when we were joined by Trafford Wilson from Snowsport Scotland. Uh, uh, Talking of old episodes, we've got over 100 to catch up on. So if you're a new listener, have a look at the website, www.theskipodcast.com, and maybe look for a tag or category that takes your interest and, uh, and have a listen to some of the old episodes. Uh, now, it's lovely to hear about skiing, but when will we get on snow uh, or indeed anywhere overseas uh, again? Uh, as always, the situation is very dynamic. So to talk us through it, I spoke with Katie Crow from Battleface Travel Insurance earlier um, to talk us through the current situation. Hi, Katie. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm great. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, all right. Thank you. Um, but, uh, you know, I enjoyed our chat last time around a couple of weeks ago. And things are changing the whole time. So I think it's useful to kind of have these conversations just to try and catch up with where we are, even though the situation is changing uh, rapidly. The latest news seems to be uh, very encouraging, I would say, um, that if you've had a double vaccination, then it looks like you won't have to quarantine on return from amber countries. Indeed, that's correct. Yeah, um, reports from Travel Weekly have said that our travellers will be able to avoid quarantine when returning from Amber Destinations, and those plans are going to be unveiled in the next few days. Yeah, very (laughs) exciting. I've seen the Times have reported they think it could come into play on the 26th of July, which I think is the beginning of the school holidays. 
it's actually a week after my kids finish school but uh, it's around school holidays time so that would work for our families assuming kids can travel with double vaccinated parents Absolutely. The Prime Minister has said that, you know, double jabs will be a liberator for those wishing to travel over the summer, which is um, indeed my view as well. Yeah, well, I appreciate not all of our listeners may have uh, double vaccinations yet, but it's certainly encouraging. And and also it seems uh, that your ability to prove that will be relatively simple as well. In the last episode, I mentioned I downloaded the NHS app and I've, I've checked in it proves my or has details of my vaccinations there and the eu digital travel pass was launched uh, well yesterday as we speak and i think that the barcode you get there is integrated with that so that should help for crossing borders absolutely um i know the as you say the um the part the digital certificate officially came into force yesterday thursday the first of july um, and by Wednesday evening, 21 EU nations out of a total of 27 were connected to the systems network and six others were technically ready. So um, the EU says that all member states should now be in a position to issue and accept the past, which is which is fantastic news for those traveling you know, from Europe. Yeah, uh, well, it's only going to make things easier, I hope. But I think an important thing that people need to consider and we'll we'll come on to testing a little bit later because I've been doing a lot of research into testing because I have a trip coming up but the it's important as well to check the uh, the FCO advice because some countries uh, travel is still not recommended for non-essential reasons and that can invalidate uh, your insurance and and that's one of the reasons I first came across Battleface in the first place because if you if you have that Battleface cover then it, it does cover you regardless of the circumstances yeah absolutely um the fcdo advice is currently advising against all but essential travel to the whole of france and france is currently on the uk amber list um and uh it means that those who are not fully vaccinated can only be permitted to travel for essential reasons but as you rightly said battleface travel insurance will cover you regardless of FCDO advisories or what colour that country is on on the traffic light system. So you will be covered no matter what, you know, and if that advisory changes during your trip, you'll still be covered. Those under 11 are actually exempt with regards to France and those older that need a negative PCR test uh, should be taken within 72 hours before of departure. So yeah it, i mean it is still exceptionally complicated so i'm planning this trip to switzerland on the 12th of uh, july going on just say so, you know i feel like i'm googling the whole time to try and just double check double check double check so i need this i need this i need this but the main thing is like sorting out all the tests going out um to go into france even though i'm double vaccinated i still need to have uh, an antigen test within uh, 48 hours etc but then when you come back you know, an, uh, an antigen lateral flow test and then days days two and days eight. And for me, what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, test and release on day five so I can finish. And expensive, difficult, really difficult to research and work out, you know, how you can do it and the best ways of uh, doing it, etc. And I saw um, a survey by the International Travel and Tourism Report that said the main factors keeping UK travellers from heading overseas were... And quarantine protocols are top. Uh, travel rules were second, which kind of sound the same to me anyway. But the costs of the COVID tests were third. And it's going to cost me somewhere around 300 to 350 pounds, I think, to do all of the different tests, uh, which is, you know, it's quite a burden on travellers. 
It's a massive burden, Ian. In fact, we are looking at going to Mallorca, which is now on the green list. And I've also been researching, testing, entry requirements, FCDO advice. And even though the Balearic Islands are on the UK's green watch list, uh, the Spanish government just announced on the 2nd of July from today that all arrivals from the UK to Spain uh, will require a negative COVID-19 test or proof of vaccination. That's, so that's another hurdle. And as again, you say, the cost of that is pretty phenomenal because looking into it, I mean, I'm double vaccinated. My children aren't. Uh, so the cost of testing will be in, in the sort of 400, 500 pounds. It's a, it's a big challenge. I mean, a lot of people kind of thinking that the government are actually actively discouraging people from travelling by making it as complicated. There was another survey uh, by YouGov where they said that only 18% of people could correctly identify the tests they needed to travel to a green list country. Um, a third thought they could use a free NHS test. And I started to look into this. Oh, can I just use the NHS test? But you can't you know, use that at all. No, you have to buy a government approved test, which is, you know, £99 typically. So that's for the PCR test. The antigen test is slightly cheaper. I believe that's like £29. Um, but, you know, if you're doing, say, for a family of five, you're doing PCR tests and antigen tests, it's going to cost a phenomenal amount. For sure. So, you know, one hopes that that will, uh, will end as well when the government um, hopefully bring in... <laughs> Uh, these these um, new policies to make it easier for us all to travel. And I think, you know, the negotiations that are going on at the moment, Boris Johnson's meeting Angela Merkel today, I believe, as we're speaking, and they're going to kind of have some sort of trade off so that, you know, foreigners, EU uh, countries who are double vaccinated will be able to come into the UK and have a kind of quid pro quo uh, agreement, which, you know, I really hope they do that and it makes it easier for us to travel as well. Yeah, what I've heard um, from reports in The Times is that Germany is preparing to relax restrictions on British travellers. As you say, Merkel and Johnson are meeting today, uh, and this will signal the abandonment of efforts by the German Chancellor to coordinate a Europe-wide hardline stance on British arrivals, because there's been talk about, you know, trying to ban British travellers into Europe. Um, so hopefully, after discussions today... That, you know, it will open the way for fully vaccinated Britons to move a lot more freely without quarantine, which is what we yeah. really want. Yeah, well, so uh, uh, yeah, we all really uh, uh, want that. So, well, I hope then perhaps that uh, the next time we speak, Katie, you can tell me about your successful trip to Mallorca and I can tell you about my successful trip to Switzerland and everything will have gone swimmingly. So will you, will you uh, come back and have another chat now in a, what, a two, three weeks time? Absolutely. I might still be out in Mallorca, but I'd be very happy to talk to you from out there. <laughs> Talk, tell, talk you through the process and how it went yeah all right that's great katie thank you very much thank you so much ian bye thanks katie for that now let's turn back to switzerland uh, i'm delighted to be joined today by mariana from engadin samritz uh, welcome mariana I, I think some of our listeners will certainly have heard of samritz but they might not realize it's part of the engadin ski area i wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the the area and the skiing there yeah, so um, Frank Moritz is known as, as the destination, but the area is much bigger than, than just um, Samaritz. So we have um, about 88 slopes uh, in and around St. Moritz. Um, for the, let's say, classical skiers, so we have the Corvilla area, Margunt area. This is quite chic and nice and very sporty. And then 
the more uh, freestyler areas are Corvatsch. Um, then we have also Tuots. It's a little bit, um, um, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes with the car on the other side of the valley. And then we have, uh, of course, uh, La Galp and Diavoletta. Diavoletta is a glacier slope uh, around the Bernina uh, Massive and, and the mountain. So it's really a unique scenery and something really special. And our slopes go from 1,800 meters to 3,000 meters. So the snow conditions are quite good. And I think this is um, uh, what makes us really strong in, in, in on that. So in, since 150 years, we are a, a winter destination and I, I think the climate conditions and, and just the, you know, the altitude is just making this possible. For sure. And, you know, you referred to the fact that it's been a destination for 150 years. I mean, Samaritan. A, win a winter. Yeah, a winter destination. A winter yeah. destination for 150 we, years. Yeah, we are. We are a summer destination since 3,000 years. So we were really, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we are known for healing uh, waters. And yes. people have been coming to Samaritzi since many, many uh, years or in the summer for, uh, for wellness and well-being and health, actually. And since 150 years, uh, we are a winter destination as well. And this goes back to some... British bets. <laughs> I'll, come, I'll come back to the British side of things. I think it might be interesting just to chip in at this point that many people probably don't realise that there's a there's a link between Saint Moritz, for example, and the uh, the kind of gateway town of uh, Bourg Saint Maurice in France, because Bourg Saint Maurice is named after Saint Maurice, and that's what Saint Moritz is. Saint Maurice as well. It's the same uh, right. uh, saint that they're named after. Exactly. So there you go. We did mention that in an earlier episode of the podcast. I'll try and track it down. But tell me a, a little bit more then about those historical links from Britain, because I think, uh, you know, the, the the British, the English, you know, did love going to the Alps and trying to conquer uh, mountains. Is that how that came about? It was a bet, actually. So this is how the legend says that the Badrut, uh, who was the founder of the tourism, of the winter tourism in uh, uh, St. Moritz um, did a bet with the English people, English gentlemen, and uh, they were usually always coming in summer and staying for a longer period of time. And they made a bet that if they come in winter and would um, uh, be dressed up only with the shirt, because they were, everyone was thinking that winter is very, very cold in summer. So he said, if you could. Uh, do that, then I will pay you to stay uh, for a month for free. So one month is free and then, then you just come up. And they came up, the English people, uh, gentlemen. I think it was really, the, the tourism was not developed. So the winter infrastructure as well. So there, we did not have any um, slopes. We did not have crest around skeleton and so on. So they had a, plenty of time. They were enjoying this um, warm and sunny uh, weather and they were very very creative and developed with the local people everything they wanted so if we look back um, crest around for example skeleton bob uh, they just had these um, these these ideas and yeah for that time very crazy ideas because we were really a little small town 
and I think what what make it uh, what what made it possible is just the people, the local people who were really open and had fun doing really crazy things. And this is what 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 is the connection and what is still the DNA of 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 this destination and and the valley as well. So. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting to know that those links were there. And in fact, um, I was reading around a little bit about uh, Sam Ritz prior to our conversation. And you can almost see the links are still there by the fact that I think that cricket is still played on the lake every winter. There's a cricket club out in Sam Ritz. Yes, we, uh, there is a cricket club uh, and the cricket is played uh, on the frozen lake. Uh, in summer, it's every winter and in summer, we are also having different um, cricket tournaments as well. Okay, not on the lake. <laughs> not on the lake then, because then it's a, it's a, it's a lake and it, we can sail on it, but not play cricket. It must be one of the very few places that cricket is played in the Alps. I'm not too uh, uh, um, aware of any. I'm a big cricket fan. I went to go and see England okay. play at the, at the Oval uh, yesterday and play cricket from time to time. But I'm pretty confident that the Cricket Club of Switzerland or whatever it is isn't particularly large, but it's really interesting to know that it's still played out there in summer and in winter as well. Um, and I think polo is played on the lake as well. Is that right? Yeah, uh, we, uh, polo is played on the lake and also now we have um, planned only on the frozen lake and now we have a summer uh, polo tournament as well, more of a, a country polo, so really easy going in the summer and, and winter it's really with all the professionals and um, best with best handicaps and the world stars uh, polo players. Then we have on the frozen lake, we have white turf, so racing uh horse ra horse racing during three weekends in uh, february cool so i mean you know that that sounds good i would say i would guess that in many listeners mind uh, they're probably thinking sam moritz is very glitzy and probably out of my range in terms of price you know because it does have that reputation we're talking about the whole of the the valley i mean would you would you agree with that and you know if if there were people looking for better value would they be looking to go to one of the the the, the other towns in the valley um yeah and i think it's st moritz itself so this is part of us it's glitzy a uh, very nice quality oriented part i think this is part of us and we will never deny it deny it but also in the town itself we are having at the moment a huge um, development so younger generations are taking over the, um, uh, the family hotels the restaurants that they have been um, managed by their families for for three or four generations and the younger family is reinterpreting the target group the you know, the need and the meaningfulness of uh, of all our offer and I think this is a little bit of change as well in in our offer, offer in the way how we uh, behave how we um, yeah how we want to be as well and for sure there is everyone in summary you can find everything so from you can have five star treatment really high luxury but you can have the sporty part where it's really uh, with the prices um, where you, everyone can afford in Samaritz or around the valley, 
And coming back to the skiing, um, so we have uh, in Britain, it's really um, nobody would think that because if you say summer is, then you think about I don't know how high prices we our ski. Uh, ticket price if you are booking an over uh, more than one uh, night in a hotel it's 45 francs Swiss francs so if you say Samaritz you would expect something else but I think price price segment uh, there are different uh, offers in in, in Samaritz and in the valley and everyone can find that's good to hear and um, I wanted to also ask you about um probably what i think might be the largest event that goes on uh in the in the engadin uh, valley which is a big cross-country skiing event uh the engadin ski marathon now i think it according to wikipedia or maybe the website it's the second largest cross-country ski event in the world and has over fourteen thousand competitors uh, you know, a friend of mine, uh, David Morris, actually done the race a couple of times uh, himself. And um, I interviewed him, uh, uh, well, uh, actually, after our conversation now, but I'm going to drop it in. Hi there, David. Uh, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Hey, Ian. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Um, I'm well, thank you. I'm, I'm nursing a broken leg. Apart from that, um, life's good. Oh, OK. Not from cross-country skiing, I hope. No, it was a skateboarding accident. But uh... the, the reason I asked you on the show today is because I knew we were going to be talking about uh, Engadin and the ski marathon there. And you're the only person I know who's actually done that race. And I think you've done it a couple of times. Uh, was it in the early 2000s? Yeah. At the time, I was working in London for a website, still going, actually, ifyouski.com. Yep. And um, the founder of IfYouSki.com is a guy called Michael Lie- Liebrick. Um, he's actually a British Olympic skier in Calgary. And uh, he started this website, but he also was keen on cross-country skiing. And he organized a group to go out um, to raise money for charity. And so each year I went out as a part of his group. And I think there's about 40 or 50 people in the group each time, a whole variety of backgrounds, Um and and it was just fantastic. It, honestly, it was. It, I, I still remember it now as being one of the most memorable events of my life. But and I had to go back for a second time to do it again. Right. Okay. And so the, I mean, I've got so many questions about it. So firstly, it's it's a marathon because it's a marathon uh, distance, uh, right? That's so you're right. actually doing yeah. forty two kilometers, but you're doing it on cross country skis. And we've covered cross country a couple of times on the podcast this winter. Um, you can do either the classic or uh, skating. How, how does it work for a marathon? Well, so it goes from one end of the valley to the other. Uh, so if you know the Engadin Valley, you've got San Moritz in the middle. And if you go up the valley, there's a couple of lakes which are all frozen over during the winter. Beautiful. Uh, they do horse racing on the lakes as well. Um, and then I guess down the valley from San Moritz, it's slightly more undulating, a few woods. Um, and I think it finishes at a place called Zuoz. And it basically goes from one end of the valley to the other. And you, there's free buses in the morning from wherever you're staying. We were staying at a place called Pontresina, which is kind of in the middle, uh, which is quite handy. We got our free bus up to the start. And it's, it's, it's a massive event. And there's 12,000 people the year I was there. Uh, and they get you organized into pens, start pens, uh, depending on your kind of previous ability i was obviously in a one of the lower start pens because right. i've done it before um and you you're there with your race bib on and there's a guy there on the uh 
uh, on, a, on a gantry doing a little bit of disco music to get you warmed up. Yeah. Uh, everyone's getting excited. And um, yeah, you, you, they, they, they set you all off and pen by pen. And yeah, I was skating. So I was using um, skating cross-country skis, which is, you know, as, as the name suggests, you're skating along from side to side. And they're a bit faster than the kind of classic skis where you move your skis forwards and backwards on the same uh, underneath your shoulders, if you like. Yeah. And um, you can choose. It doesn't really matter. There's a, there's a classic kind of division and there's a skating division. Um, I think the... I'm not quite sure how they set them off. But I certainly remember mainly people being around me that were skating. It was a fabulous, fabulous experience because it was rather like, it was like the London Marathon in the snow. Yeah. It was, it, the spectators were out, people were cheering and there's, there's feed stations and, you know, it's a big event in Switzerland. You know, For sure, followed brilliant. By the national media, Yeah. And can I ask a question then? How how on earth did you train for that in the UK? If you were training for the London Marathon, it's pretty easy. You stick on your shoes, you go for a run, uh, etc. How do you train for a, a cross-country marathon when you live in Britain? The, the truth is I didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I, I'd never cross-country skied in my life. So okay. um, That was your first time literally on cross-country skis? Well, I went out on the Wednesday... And then we organized a ski instructor for Thursday and Friday, two sessions, morning and afternoon, to have cross-country skiing lessons. And, and honestly, I was a complete beginner. I was falling over left, right, and center. But after two days, I kind of got the basic hang of it. Saturday morning, I went out when I did the first half of the race on my own, just to get used to pacing myself and so on, which was exhausting. And then I rested Saturday afternoon, and then we raced Sunday. So uh, I think at the time I was pretty fit because I'd been doing a lot of cycling, yeah. um, you know, and that was decent base fitness. Uh, but really it was just brute force that got me through. I mean, it was absolutely exhausting. Uh, well, I bet it was. I mean, to, to try and give the listener an idea of, well, I mean, how, lo how long does it take? I mean, generally, I think people think a, a, a decent marathon, if you're on feet, would be anything less than kind of three and a half hours. How long is it taking you to to do that on skis? Well, it's faster on skis than it is to run. Um, I'm not entirely sure by what factor. I think the winners did it in about an hour and 30. Okay. Um, so they're, they're flying along. My time, if I remember correctly, was two hours 44. Right, okay. And I think I, I was in basically the top third or top 40% with that time, which I great. was amazed by. Great. Well, like you said, maybe all of that cycling uh, helped, but you're surely using completely different muscles because if you were skating, then I don't know what they are, maybe adductors or something like that, where they not take a punishing when you're uh, doing that the whole time? You use every muscle in your body when a cross-country <laughs> scheme. That's seriously you're using your arms, your back, your bum, your legs, your stomach, your neck, every <laughs> single muscle at once, which makes it extremely energy demanding, oxygen demanding sport. It's probably one of the most aerobic activities you can do with your body. Yeah, actually, I think I've seen uh, in uh, a book I was reading a little while ago that the the absolute fittest uh, athletes with the best VO2 max typically are cross-country skiers. I, I think it would help to have big lungs. But yeah. I, I honestly say anybody who fancies giving it a go, it's a brilliant event. It's really well organized. And 
it's something that if somebody's never done it before, you can learn to do and enjoy. Uh, it's, 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 it's an accessible, um, you know, peak that people can go for. Cool. Well, I mean, that's excellent, David. Thanks for sharing your experience uh, with with me and with our uh, listeners. And uh, let's go back to uh, uh, Marianne and have a quick chat with her. So, David, David clearly enjoyed that, uh, Mariana. Can, can you tell us um, how anyone inspired by that can enter the uh, the race for next year? Yeah, it was difficult during the corona. Uh, it was postponed and we did it um, like singular races. It was not uh, where everyone could participate at the same time. And we are hoping that next year we really can uh, be able to to do that again. We can't wait, and I think it's just a gathering where everyone uh, around the world who even does not necessarily is a professional in in cross country skiing. It's, I think it's the whole feeling around it and participation and the whole uh, atmosphere and and the lifestyle and all this uh, coming together from from different countries. And I think this makes it really special so we are looking forward to it and we hope that we can um come back again stronger yeah. than before <laughs> well he he uh, david uh, you know he clearly uh, loved it for sure and um you know it just to clarify it's actually a marathon distance isn't it so 42 kilometers but you have exactly. to cover it on cross country on cross country skis uh, and it takes place uh, in next year. It looks like it takes place in the middle of March, 13th of March. So if anyone wants to drop that into their calendar, uh, they can. Thanks so much for that insight into Sam Moritz and uh, Engadin Mariana. Now I'd like to turn to my other guest, uh, James Gambrell, who is the new general manager at the Ski Club of Great Britain. Hi, James. How are you? Very well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, listeners might be able to tell from the edit we had a little problem uh, with... Uh, kind of a sound and connection earlier you had the entire power in your house cut off but we've sorted that out now so we're editing it in later and I'm delighted to welcome you back on the show uh, regular listeners will recognize James from several conversations we've had previously about Listex the uh, trade networking show for the snow sports industry uh, but you've now moved on and joined the ski club of Great Britain as general manager so congratulations um, on the new role when did you start? I are we I we're just trying to work out. I think it I think this is the end of week five, but it might be week six, but not very okay. long ago. Okay, a lot to uh, a lot to take on. I, I think it might be useful perhaps for uh, our listeners if you could we could start off with a bit of background. Could you give us a, a brief uh, history of your experience in the ski industry? <laughs> I'll try I'll try and keep it brief. So I mean the key thing I guess is I started at the ski club of Great Britain and um, ran university ski trips and then saw a job. Running, uh, working for Fresh Tracks, the Ski Club's holiday program back in 97, show my age, mm -hmm. uh, did that for a season, um, had a great time and then did the Ski Club reps course and then spent the whole of the 98-99 season as the Ski Club rep in Meribel, um, which if anyone remembers that far back was an incredible season where you could ski down to Breed Laban for the whole season, so I, I timed it well, had a great time. Uh, then, goodness, then what? Then I uh, moved to Australia for a while, worked for a company called Alpine World, selling trips from Sydney down to the Snowy Mountains, came back to the UK, worked for Snow and Rock, helped open the Covent Garden store, trained as a boot fitter for Snow and Rock, um, <laughs> fitted some celebrity boots, Robbie Williams and Michael Grave were two notable ones, I still remember. Uh, then started the first of three roles with Ski World. Uh, so initially groups manager, and um, then running the North American programme, 
and then running Skiwood Special Events, which was their program for military groups and students and corporate, that sort of thing. Uh, then I launched Travel Plan Ski in the UK, which was the biggest Australian ski tour operator. And we started a business together in the UK. That was 2007. Sadly, 2008, the world went a bit upside down with the financial crisis. Uh, Australian company had to retreat. So we pulled the plug on that business. And I then launched Expedient Marketing, which was a marketing representation company. Um, we, we gained the contract to represent the Elster Valley uh, in the UK. So we did that for three years and also places like Telluride in the US, some peaks in Canada, multiple tour operators and, 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 and others. Uh, did that for 10 years and in 2012 launched Listex, which you mentioned, the London International Social Sports Trade Exchange, which is still going strong now with um, sort of 250 people twice a year gathering at Snow Centre. Then, uh, I'm trying to think if I missed anything, though. Then in 2020, so just as the pandemic really kind of bit, I launched the Mountain Trade Network, which is an online networking uh, platform for the mountain uh, mountain travel industry and the mountain industry in general. Um, so we launched that just as the pandemic started because it's online. We run, I think, I say we, I used to run 15 virtual events, many of which Ian, you have participated in and spoken at. Um, and that, yeah, brings me full circle back to five weeks ago, back at the ski club. Yeah, well, that's that's quite a lot. Not quite. Uh, I mean, that's a, a lot of time uh, in the industry uh, for sure. And actually, I think I remember meeting you uh, in Maribel in '99. Because did you have one of those like really large? Uh, well, they were all large back then. But the Nokia folding phones that opened up. It was like a yeah, PDA as well, or something like so. that. And a fluorescent yellow ski club jacket, <laughs> which I still have upstairs in my wardrobe. Right, like, very good. Yeah. Well, uh, you've been in the ski industry for a long time, but the uh, the Ski Club of Great Britain is the oldest, I think I'm right in saying, the oldest ski club in the world. I, I had a little uh, look on Wiki and it says it was founded in 1903 at a meeting in the Cafe uh, Royale in London. Um, you know, Until the 60s, it was responsible for uh, the British Alpine ski racing teams. And we could probably do a, a whole episode of the history of the ski club and, and maybe uh, we will one day. But clearly the world has changed uh, in the last uh, 100 and 20 years or however long that is and um, how do you I wonder if you could tell us um, how you see the role of the ski club now and who is the ski club written for sure I mean as you say it, it's changed hugely I think one of the key things is that you know the ski club really was was responsible at least partly responsible for creating skiing as, as a holiday you know as a sport i mean before 1903 and the ski club it, it was really you know a means of transport in in scandinavia and and it was the ski club that traveled to to switzerland members of the ski club that convinced the swiss to open their mountain railways in winter which they thought was crazy so that people could go up and go skiing so you know it, it, it is in just linked with the very beginnings of, of our industry that we work in now as a, a as a tour operator yeah, actually, you missed that conversation uh, earlier. But when I was uh, when we were talking about Sam Ritz uh, earlier uh, with Mariana, we talked about that history with uh, with the Brits and how they helped develop it into a ski resort. And Sam Ritz just being one of the examples of that. But so things have changed uh, now. I mean, how do you how do you ensure the club is relevant now for its uh, members? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of our, our, our biggest challenges, obviously, at the moment, because, as you say, things have changed. Um, you know, 20 years ago when we launched the Ski Club website, again, it, it was one of the first. When I worked at the Ski Club, we had a, 
a human Alexa uh, who was at the end of the phone who would answer questions for ski club members um, and knew everything you could possibly imagine. Now, obviously, all of that information is now widely available online, so that service is, is, is no longer the same. Um, but I think because of our history and because of the expertise that lies within the ski club, one of our key roles is we are that trusted voice. You know, we, we've heard a lot about kind of trust and fake news and that sort of thing in the last uh, in the last few years. And, you know, information is everywhere. But how do you trust the information that, that you receive? You know, whether that be snow reports, whether that be resort reports. And I think it's really important that we are a, a not for profit organisation. Um, we're a members club. And therefore, what we look to do is provide completely impartial information high quality information that is that is not there to try and sell something it's there to to represent the, the truth um you know and when i was a rep i was sending my snow reports back daily uh to the club um from from maribel so you know the snow reports were how much snow there was because i was there so you know that that's changed and we gather information in different ways now but i think that impartiality and that and that quality and trust in information is really key um and, you know, how do we stay relevant going forward? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of key things to say. I mean, firstly, you know, like any organisation, we're not we're not there for every skier. You know, there are two million active skiers in the UK in, in a normal year, not last year, but hopefully next year there will be. Um, you know, we, we don't expect two million people to join the ski club. Um, you know, we had 5% of the market. We, we would be very happy indeed. So we're, we're not there for everyone. Um, we don't really get involved so much with people starting out skiing. There are, you know, organisations like Snow Sports England and others um, who we work very closely with, but they, they are there for the sort of, you know, the, the, the very grassroots participation. Um, I think we're really there for the next step. It's when people have kind of been bitten by the bug and, and decide that this is, you know, skiing is, is a big part of their life. It's something that they that they want to do more of. Um, and where do they go? You know, what, where do they turn to next? That's where we come in to go, OK, we can help you take this further, whether that be skiing off piece with a mountain guide, whether that be improving your ski skills, whether that be trying some, you know, some other form of skiing, whether it be telemarking or anything else, or just looking for information and advice. That's where we step in. Um, and I think that's where we stay relevant, because that need is still there to, to kind of bridge that gap between I've never skied. I love it. What do I do next? Yeah, I mean, I can see how that makes sense. So you talk about the number of uh, members there. I think uh, the last thing when I was looking around, it, it, there were a, a, a tad under 25,000 members in 2019. Yep. So, yeah, that's a significant number of people. It might not be the 5% of the market, depending how big the market is uh, that you're looking for. But that's a lot of people who are members of the club. And um, I think a lot of them are members partly because they're skiers and they feel like they should be part of that uh, kind of community anyway. But also a lot of active uh, skiers are members to access the rep serv services. And I know these have changed quite a lot to do with legislation, etc. But I wondered if you could just outline what the kind of rep services that members would be getting this year, because you have you have reps and social reps as well, I think. Yeah, I, I guess we, we have three different sort of one snow services, we call them for, for members. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of go through them briefly. So the first one is our instructor-led guiding programme, which, as it suggests, is uh, ski instructors that will guide members. So they're not there to provide ski instruction. They're there to guide members. We run that in partnership with New Generation Ski School, that I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know. Um, and, we, and we run that in resorts all over the Alps, particularly in France. Um, and, it, and it's a way of accessing, you know, an expert local who will show you around the mountain um, without necessarily people who want to book a ski lesson. So that's the first part of it the second part of it is the reps program now as i said i was a rep 20 years ago and the repping service has changed since then 
what our reps do now is they are a point of contact for members in resort. So they are there to help them. Um, again, that that impartial, trusted expert voice, they can book uh, mountain guides for them. They can help them book instructors. They can help them recommending restaurants or ski shops. Um, they can ski with members, but they ski as a member of a group. So all of our reps are members of the club. And if members should so wish, then the rep can go and ski with them as a member of the group and they make decisions as a group, which you know is also very much the way the mountain guide community is, is also moving now that you know the, the group make group decisions um so it is different uh it's not a leading service anymore as it once was it's not somebody at the front saying you know follow me and taking them down the mountain it, it is about organizing group skiing which is really at the core of the ski club is you know like-minded skiers who who want to get together with people of similar ability and and, and go skiing Sorry, and then you mentioned the social the social rep service. So that isn't something that the ski club is is currently providing as a service to members. That really started uh, in Val d'Isere, where there's a lot of ski club members, and they began to organise their own groups and to go off skiing socially. Um, and and that's something that could happen in other resorts where there's a lot of ski club members. So places like Zermatt and Teen and others, when where, where a lot of members tend to congregate, um, they organise everything themselves. They can use the ski club app if they want to use that to meet up, but they obviously all could also can use services like WhatsApp or text messaging or whatever else. Uh, and they meet up and they go skiing as a group. And again, it's it's the same as you know if you and I go on holiday and we want to ski with like-minded, similar ability skiers. Right. Okay. So just just to track back then to the rep. I mean, they so they you're saying that they can ski with the rep as a group, but you know if they're invited along, but the rep probably is someone who's been in that resort for quite a long time, who knows the area. It's going to be going to be difficult sometimes, aren't they? Going to be crossing over that line to guiding them around. I mean, assuming they wouldn't be wearing uh, their uniform or anything. No, they're not wearing a uniform because they're not they're not guiding, they're not leading. Um, they they are there to yeah facilitate skiing, and of course they might suggest look, you know this run is better this time of day because of the way the snow falls or actually if we take this run there's a mountain restaurant that would be really good so in the same way that when people go skiing as a group you know there generally is two or three people maybe in the group who sort of makes that decision but it is very much that they are there as a as a member of the group and you know the reps course is is what people uh, go on in order to become a ski club rep obviously the content of that is changing because it's more about facilitating that group and, and working as a group so you know we are again i think changing and reflecting the the, the changing environment Right. Okay. Well, that may that makes sense. What about another issue that affects the ski industry as a whole, which is a kind of aging demographic? Mm. Uh, generally, you know, there are not so many younger people coming into the industry. You know, what is there that you can do to bring younger people into the ski club and, and become members? Well, it's an interesting question because I think uh, you know this this was tried by the ski club a few years ago, and and to be honest, Ian, without great success. And, and I think the reason why is that it wasn't fully thought through as to what those members wanted. So we were quite successful at recruiting younger members. We weren't very successful at keeping them. Um, now you know me very well. You know that market research is part of my uh, one, one of my key interests. Um, we spent a lot of time at Listex discussing that. So in all honesty, one of my jobs now, and obviously as I said, I'm only five weeks in, but you know one of my key objectives for the next year or so in this role, when we get past the the, the, the COVID crisis that is impacting everything, is to go out and run that market research to find out exactly that. What is it that younger skiers are looking for? What is it they want? And is it something the ski club can provide? So I think, you know, we've learned from our mistakes of it's not about going out and just targeting a younger demographic. We've got to figure out 
what it is they want. Are we the organization to provide it? And if so, yeah, let's go on and deliver it. Yeah, I mean, it is obviously difficult when you've only been in the job for a matter of weeks to be able to immediately come up with the answers for all of these things. And obviously, you know, you weren't involved uh, in the club um, prior. And I think it's no secret that the ski club has had some financial challenges mm. over the last uh, few years. I think um, what I read uh, was reported the club made an £840,000 uh, loss. And it's led to, a, you know, quite a turnover of, uh, of CEOs, uh, etc. Um, is that been resolved now? Is that a, you know, an issue at all that uh, that carried it over? Has, it has been resolved, as you say. It's all public knowledge. We are a club. So, you know, we publish our AGM, we publish our account. So, you know, it's all very much public knowledge and, and we acknowledge it. We, 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 I mean, we could spend a long time discussing it, but we have a fairly unique structure in that we're run by a council, which is elected by our members. So they're kind of a non-executive director board. Uh, and then obviously, as uh, as general manager, I, I run the club operationally day to day. So I think what's important to note is that is that the council we have is completely different from the council of a few years back. Um, they've come in and been elected this year, obviously. Uh, our chief executives have have moved on from that position. Um, yeah, it was a combination of factors, uh, which again are, are, are all very much in the public uh, public domain, certainly for members to see. And, and really, it was as I mentioned before. I think over expansion into areas such as uh, you know that younger market, um, which didn't transpire into long term membership, and and some you know over ambitious plans in in holidays and other areas. Um, I mean, we are a not for profit organisation, but that means that the profits we make are reinvested invested into the club that doesn't mean we plan to not make a profit every year you know yeah so the money doesn't go to a to a shareholder or, or anything else the money gets reinvested back in the club so we're, we're tightening up or we have tightened up on the tour operator side and the marketing plan and everything else and obviously covid has impacted us like anybody else but actually we financially we, we had a very stable year last year and, and we're in a good place to build from here yeah, because the club, I think I'm right in saying the club liquidated some assets or, or, or somehow, uh, you know, brought cash back in yeah. from selling yeah. selling property. Is that what happened? House, exactly. So we had a property in Wimbledon Village, which was, which was you know, where most of the asset value of the club was. That was sold. Now, some of that money was used and unfortunately is not recuperated. But the money that was left has been uh, very well invested with a company called Rathbones, uh, who specialise in charities and not-for-profit um, investments. Um, that money has been very well managed over the last uh, couple of years. And actually, the growth in that investment fund meant that last year um, we actually turned a, a, a small operational profit, if you count in the, 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 the fund growth. Um, so in a very difficult season, we were we were you know, we were well managed enough that we that we, we looked after the money um, going forward. Uh, we're going to look after the money. Well, again, you know me, I've run my own business for 12 years. I look after the numbers. So oh, we are in a good place. Um, it's very challenging, of course, and this season is, is still challenging for us as it is for everyone in ski, but we do have, you know, a significant investment portfolio behind us. We have a, a tightly run operation and um, we have a plan. Uh, we are making uh, those those investments in things like market research to understand the market better on what we should do next. And and I think the future is, is very bright. Great. Well, I think, uh, you know, that's brilliant to share all of that uh, with us, James. And I think really the time to be uh, talking is in another year's time where you've had a full chance to have a look at it. And also when we can find out a little bit more about what, you know, your research has told you about the, uh, the, the, the club itself, what members are looking for, what younger people would look for and having a bit of some time to be able to put together a plan for it. Because I think, you know, the Ski Club of Great Britain, it's not just... 
its uh, longevity that it, it makes it relevant. There is um, there is something there. I'm not personally quite sure exactly what it is, but I think it's always been a very important part of the uh, of the ski scene, and it needs to have that relevance. I think the internet provide you know was a big issue because you had a long period of time where, as you say, the ski club of Great Britain was the sort the great source of information, and yes, they were ahead of the game in uh, getting a good website in place. But as the internet you know developed and everything became available, information became available for free. It kind of undermined uh, 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 that that position as being the authority a little bit and so it's a uh, it's really about being able to uh, to flex and come up with something different so yes yeah. we'd like to have you back on the show again uh, you know, uh, down the track and in the meantime uh, you know all all the best um you know in the, in the new job thanks very much james thanks here thanks a lot uh, just moving on, I'd like to thank Mark McGarry for buying me a cuppa since the last episode. Uh, don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the ski podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast, and all, all cuppas are much appreciated. Uh, we've had over 80 uh, ratings on Apple Podcasts, but no recent reviews. So, listener, uh, why not take a couple of minutes to say why you like the show? Hopefully, you do. And it'll help other skiers out there to find us and join the party. Uh, I'd also like to thank Doug Newman, who shared us on Facebook. I enjoy listening to podcasts, a chat from Europe and beyond, uh, including travel advice and insight. Thanks for that, Doug. And Everest in the Alps on Twitter. He said, uh, we love uh, the ski podcast for all things snow related. And Johnny, enjoy your stickers. Uh, don't forget, if you like, uh, listener, some uh, snow, uh, ski podcast stickers for your helmet or ski or phone, then just email the ski podcast at gmail.com with your address and we'll post them out for free. Uh, and that's also the email address, uh, the ski podcast at gmail.com. If you've got any suggestions or questions for items you'd like to have on listen to on the show. So when our next episode comes out, will depend on what the rules are for travel. Uh, you'll have heard from my chat with Katie that if all goes well, I'm hoping to go to Switzerland for some trail running in mid-July. So fingers crossed that happens. And you'll next hear from us the week after that. Uh, uh, Jim, very much a friend of the podcast, is also going to be out in Switzerland and reporting back on, uh, on surfing in Switzerland. You can follow that trip at Skipedia and the latest from the show at the Ski Podcast. Uh, we're on Instagram as well. I'd like to thank my guests from today. Mariana, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and James, uh, we lost him. We got him back. We lost him again. But thank you to James <laughs> and always, as always to Switzerland Tourism for their support. And finally, thank you, listener, for sharing this time with us. So until next time, goodbye. So I've just finished the edit on episode 75 and I can tell you it's the most complicated one I've done yet. I did five separate interviews and we had another uh, three bits of audio all to uh, edit in. And so it's taken me more time than any other podcast I've done before. Uh, and, you know, I really enjoy it, about, but I'm just saying it takes up a lot of my time. And if you feel like if you've enjoyed it and you feel like buying me a coffee, then go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash a ski podcast and you can buy me a cuppa there. I genuinely would really appreciate it. Thank you.